So how does the 1978 to 1984 housing market compare to today's market? Surprisingly, there's a ton of crossover and oversupply. Newsflash, we have been severely underbuilding since the 0708 crash. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. With that said, where are we now from a building supply perspective and where are we heading? I'm Dalton Elliott. This is the Real Estate of Things. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. John Curry, back again, CEO of Satanta, the coolest land development lender in the whole wide world. Thank you for joining, sir. Thank you, sir. I'll take that. We uh, we have to do one of these in person. This is our it's our third episode together, and we gotta we gotta get together. We'll, we'll I gotta get up to Charlotte, and uh, ne- next episode that you and I do together, we have to do in person. I say I don't think I don't know if you can see it over my right shoulder. Let you know, um, we do have a sort of our uh, my my drinks trolley there, and there, while it's not a pappy's, but there is a bottle of Van Winkle um, that uh, I, I could be tempted to open, um, depending on uh, your your schedule. So have that as an open invitation next time you're in Charlotte. You're a gentleman, and I'll uh, I'll make my calendar right so we can make this happen. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful. So we we touched on a lot last week. I want to dive right back into it. And I jotted down a, uh, a quote that I'm going to keep here. Marry the house, date the rate. So I, I love this. That I, I, As I said, that's from the smartest Irish person in the industry, Margaret Whelan. I, I am, I'm quoting her. I'm, not, I'm not, <laughs> not stealing her slogan. You're a gentleman. And yeah, you don't want to cross Margaret and have her coming after you. And uh, as you... You said the the second smartest. Uh, we'll we'll settle for the second smartest Scottish uh, person in the in the industry now for today. It works. All right. So oversupply. Let's talk about that. That's kind of where we left off. Um, talk to me about it. Just just basic supply demand. Where in the world are we? And and we talked about. Um, you know, yes, there's kind of an influx of lots being worked on, but how does that really play out uh, over the next few quarters? Yeah, certainly. So, like, there's there's lots of different things to it, and and people will have different opinions on it. And, and I'm probably I'm probably on sort of team. We've been underbuilding for uh, you know 15 years. Um, some very smart people disagree with that. They think we've only been underbuilding for a year or two, but we all agree that there's some level of of underbuilding, but oversupply is something that you can't, you just can't fix easily. And oversupply is always going to be the thing that, um, that craters a uh, housing market, just like it craters any other market. And that's, and I think if, if there was one main takeaway I would love for people to get is housing is not some mystical, confusing product. Um, the laws of supply and demand still apply. And if you were to look back at 07, 07 and 08, were dominated by the emotional response that you could keep building homes and people would keep buying them and you could keep getting new mortgages. And it was all driven by that. And again, it's a well-told story, but to understand that it was not a surprise that we were oversupplying the market. All indicators were telling us that. We were just being told this time it's different. And I think I mentioned this uh, before uh, when we spoke last year, but Anytime you're in a meeting and somebody tells you this time it's different, that's when you get up and walk out. And, you know, it's, it's never different. It's just, where are we in the cycle? Where are we in, in what's happening? And, you know, you can't oversupply 
and it not come back to bite you. It's just, you know, you can have wishful thinking that made us go probably an extra year, two years of overbuilding without, you know, course correcting, but it was, it was obvious. So, you know, oversupply, we can't, we can't fix. And what we've done since then has been um, just, just shocking um, from a uh, home building perspective. So for example, and actually, I think, no, I, I thought I was actually prepared and I had written down these numbers. So these numbers are going to be in the, in the rough, in the rough sense, but you know, this is all uh, from the, the Fed Bureau. If you were to take housing starts from 91 to 2000, on average, we did 1,400 new starts per month, right? So that's the average um, over that 10-year period. And if you take the period of time from uh, 2001 through 2000, sorry, yeah, 91 to 2000, then if you take the time period from 2001 through 2010, including that overbuild period, we still only averaged about 1,400 starts per month. Per month now, during the boom, at sometimes we were doing twenty two, twenty three thousand start or twenty three hundred starts, and over that boom period, we averaged about nineteen hundred. So definitely more than than average for for a sustained period of time. But even over a ten year period, with all of the oversupply that happened, the undersupply quickly uh, kicked in, and we averaged the same uh, amount of starts as we did in nineteen ninety. Now, from twenty ten through twenty twenty. When the biggest generation since the boomers started coming into their home building, uh, home buying years and home renting years, we averaged over the last 10 years, including the 2020 and 2021 boom, we averaged less than um, 1,050 starts. So we have averaged over 10 years, 400 starts per month less than we had in the previous average of the previous 10 and 20 years before that. You can't look at that and say that we have um, addressed the supply issue, that there is oversupply. And yet you read articles, um, I won't cite the one because I don't want it to get more traffic, but there was a well-read, well-shared article, the next housing crisis, um, oversupply of homes. And you're like, can we can we just get to supply of homes first? Can we just get to like, can we go from undersupply to supply and and then let's talk about oversupply? But you know, and it's it's just a very it's just very frustrating to be hearing people far smarter than me, and I'm not being disingenuous, they're far smarter than me, they're but they bring the emotional baggage off 07, 08, and it just clouds a lot of people's uh, judgment on the fact that you know, we don't have enough over, we don't have enough homes yet. And if we were serious about the affordability issue, which I brought up on our last episode, if we were serious about that, you would have local ordinances doing everything in their power to make housing more affordable, to make the cost of land less expensive. Um, and, you know, the 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 example of this, the, the best market to, to share this um, is the Texas real estate market. And, now, I have a little bit of concerns about Texas just because there's more homes under construction in Texas, like genuinely on a objective basis, not on the just how long it takes to build homes, but they're building more homes than they ever have in their history. And that's, you know, there's only so many, you know, California transplants that they can absorb. But, you know, at the same time, what's wonderful about Texas is land is pretty cheap and land is pretty cheap. You, the cost of developing is pretty cheap and you can, we've got a project in uh, Houston where the finished lot sales, finished lot sales um, in a booming part of the Houston submarket are 55,000 
uh, and they're being purchased by by uh, private and public home builders for fifty five thousand a finished lot. Meanwhile, we're seeing deals in Charlotte where the paper lot, the unfinished, the just barely entitled, is selling for sixty to seventy thousand a lot, and that tells you the difference between a market where it's easy to get land entitled and land is plentiful compared to compared to otherwise. So if we were serious about it, we would deal with, um, uh, we would sort of deal with the regulation part of it, but we're not. And I think the the key thing for people to understand when we talk about supply, and I think I addressed this in our, in our first podcast um, last year, is, you know, for us to get enough homes to meet demand, we would have to make regulation very, very simple. We would need to make uh, land owners, you know, willing to sell at reasonable prices. We would need to have a labor force that can actually develop these lots. We would need to have the weather to actually play ball and stop being uh, as, as temperamental and, uh, you know, across the board as, as it is. And we would need home uh, builders to be able to develop homes at a probably twice as fast as they, they build homes twice as fast as they currently are. None of those things are happening, but all of those things would need to happen for us to just meet our actual, you know, generational demand. We can talk a little bit about, you know, pricing demand, but but that's what would need to happen just to meet the generational annual demand of housing. And it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So we're, in your estimation, we are not close to getting back to supply. We're far ways out. We are, we are two to three years. If we had continued the pace that we started this year on, we were... 18 months to two years from hitting normal supply levels, the reaction of the market to the Fed rate hikes has indicated that we will probably build less homes next year and the year after than we built these previous two years, which means, ironically, um, the measures that were supposed to curb inflation will just result in less homes uh, or fewer homes, and those homes will result in higher rent and arguably higher mortgage, which are two of the leading uh, issues when it comes to inflation. But again, smarter people than me think that, that makes sense. Fun, fun, fun. Uh, yeah, the one terrible habit I'm trying to curb is uh, when I'm laying in bed, oftentimes at night, I'll scroll through Reddit news. So just different, you know, what, what what's trending news-wise. The other night I stopped after 10 minutes and I was like, this is terrible. I have to stop doing this. It's all doom and gloom. And there were two, I scrolled through after I realized or had that feeling. I scrolled through because there were two big themes. Uh, you know, One theme, which we will not touch on one bit, uh, pretty much demise of the American Republic. Uh, the other one was housing is a complete disaster, right? Just absolute doom and gloom, um, left and right. You've referenced a couple of articles uh, over this episode and the last one. And yeah, just I, I call that out as nothing else than it seems like there has been just a drastic influx ever since rates started to increase in February and March. There's a drastic influx of um, negative media attention, that really scary media attention towards housing, which just seems completely counterproductive. But, you know, there's, they, you know, interests are not terribly aligned with uh, anything other than getting eyeballs put to something. But just scrolling through something, I noticed that I just terrible doom and gloom. And even, you know, we have 
TVs throughout the office with the news on and just housing can't get a break. Well, it's, it's so, and what's interesting, what's worth bearing in mind is like, as I said, I am actually quite bearish on some of the aspects of it. And what I'm, what I'm laying out, I guess what I'm laying out is sadly good for me, good for our industry, somewhat good for, for you guys in, in your industry and good for builders, good for developers. You know, that underlying demand is not going to go there. And if anything, we're going to see costs come into, uh, to alignment. So that's, that's good, but there's going to be, there's going to be losers. Um, ultimately, the losers are the is the the home buying public. Um, until we get uh, more homes delivered in a more predictable, um, efficient manner, you know they're going to be paying too much, um, and they're going to be having to choose between renting and buying, and they're going to have to be choosing between roommates or or, or putting off family formation. So that's not good. And again, as an industry, if we were serious about this, we should be, you know talking up what is actually happening and, and uh, understanding that. But there's other people that it's bad for as well. And, and perhaps people who are listening to to this podcast are people who are interested in the real estate market. So for example, there's a lot of people who put land under contract at a very high price and are taking it through the entitlement process right now, expecting that the builders are going to pay the same ridiculous deposits for any piece of land that they were a year ago. They're not. Builders are going to be more selective on what projects they do. Um, and again, that's good for us because we only back projects that are fully entitled and pre-sold. But for that you know, developer or land entitlement person, they just spend a long time because land entitlement takes years. They spend a long time thinking that there was a, a pot of gold at the end that's now being snatched away, at least you know, temporarily. Um, you know, fix and flip. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that, just given where pricing is, because we do expect it to be some level of a, of a cooling off. Um, interestingly, um, this is, will be a decent time for realtors. Um, you would have thought that during the housing boom we had over the last two years, that uh, this would have been a great time to be a realtor. In, in fact, we've seen the number of realtors decline. Um, because they don't have enough inventory, they don't have enough bread and butter things to to sell. Um, you know the the what we talked about in the last episode, things selling within a day or so. That's not normal. They're normally you know required to sort of churn uh, through some things, but also they're no, they're used to seeing more inventory on the resale side come to market. That's not happening. So that will be slightly better um, for them. And then for the person who is who you know has been sitting on their home for the last two to three years, has got a lot of equity that's built up in that home. And maybe they were getting ready to to sell because they were going to move somewhere else. And they're going to have to get used to the fact that maybe it's going to take two to three weeks to sell. Maybe, shockingly, their home may be on the market for two to three months. That's not the end of the world. That's normal. Before the home that we, we bought in 2018, the previous home, uh, when we put that on the market, it took, I think, five months to sell. In uh, early 2019, we finally sold it. So we'd actually had two homes for a little bit because that's normal, you know. So people people need to get used to to what that means. So it's not that it's it's not what I'm not saying is the good times are here forever, and you know uh, nobody needs to worry and ignore those silly headlines that are telling you things are are getting uh, bad. But what I am saying, and this is something that you know you and I have talked about offline, and this is something that I, I when we. Uh, as a team, we spent a, a great uh, couple of days in the Lima One office in Greenville, sort of comparing ideas, because obviously we do A&D, you guys do vertical, and there's a very good synergy there. But I think one of the things that everybody heard me say, and we're probably sick of hearing me say, is that there is a huge difference between good and bad 
and better and worse. Is the market getting worse from a price perspective and from a you know time on the market and increasing inventory? Yes, compared to the crazy highs of 2021, it is getting worse. Is it bad? Not even close. It, it Things need to get considerably worse. And I'll give you one quick example on that. And then maybe we can sort of talk a little bit about the pricing side, because I think one of the things we've uh, I've mentioned to you is I'm a, I consider myself an expert on uh, housing from 1978 to 1984 and public builders' uh, gross margins over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. So I want to use that. I want to use that uh, knowledge as best I can. This is probably the only outlet because my kids are certainly sick of hearing me um, uh, hear me uh, uh, talk about it. Um, but you know, standing you know, unsold. Finished but unsold inventory is a really good measure in a community. That tells us that in a new home community, how many homes have, has a builder built but not yet sold? And there was news in from May to June that the numbers had gone from 0.3 to 0.4, which we were reliably informed by uh, the survey uh, provider was an increase of 33% a 33% rise in unfinished inventory, right? So that means that in five communities, there are two homes finished and unsold. Now, thankfully, we were able to look at the data, which was provided by the same group. And we saw that in 2019, the number of the average number of finished but unsold homes was 1.8, which means in five communities, there was eight unfinished homes, right? So and that's what I'm talking about, good or bad, better or worse. Things could get four times worse and still be good. You know, we could have eight unfinished homes, unfinished but unsold homes in communities and, you know, in in five communities, and that would actually be normal. However, we'll touch on this with with the margins, it will be reported as bad. The nature of the beast can't can't do much about that but that's why you have to go the extra step you gotta peel back a layer you can't if you just go off the headlines uh dark and depressing generally speaking right yeah so with the time we have left i definitely want to hear this because you shot over a note and said i'm an expert on 78 to 84 and i'm just uh quite curious to to hear about this so please do uh forge ahead yeah, well, I think what's important to note is, you know, we talked about supply and then you have demand, right? So demand gets impacted by multiple things. And as I said, we have a generational demand that's not going to get fixed. But, you know, if they can't buy because of uh, work or they can't buy because of high uh, mortgage rates, you know, you, you need to sort of see, you know, what what happens. So the best thing we can do is look at 40 years ago and see what happened then. Now, Starts plummeted, sales plummeted for a year and a half to two years. And then they came back up. Now, we didn't reach the 78 highs until the mid 80s. But in a real, you know, you know what actually happened in housing, you know, there was a year and a half of, of a drastic drop. And then it just sort of, again, went back to normal. So if you were cutting your cloth to normal, you know, you had maybe a year of, of, of choppiness. But what's more interesting is what happened to the price of land and what happened to the price of homes. So the average home price in 1978 was $47,000, give or take. By 1982, when interest rates were at 18%, the 
average home price was 67,000. So now that was an increase. Now what the economists will tell you is that on a inflation adjusted basis, that was a 5% decrease in home prices. Fine. Tell that to the person who has bought that home for 20,000 more than their neighbor did three to four years earlier. And you know, convince them that actually they got a good deal. You know, I was like, yeah, okay. On an inflation adjusted basis, the price went down, but on a, oh my God, what did I just pay? It went up considerably. And what we were seeing is that home sales, while they did drop, they still continued again, because people need to live in homes. People need homes. We're not expecting anything like that. We're thinking most of the smart people are thinking that, you know, mortgage rates may go up to six and a half, seven percent. And if anything, the word seems to be that, you know, that may be tempering off given the the big R that everyone is, is afraid to mention. So, you know, and if that happens, we'll start seeing things go down. But even if they do, that's six percent. Right? right now, prime is four and three quarters. When we launched our platform, prime was five and a half in twenty eighteen. You know, like we have to have some level of of understanding of where things are. And then that brings us to I know we don't have much time. That brings us sort of to pricing. And that's where the the builder's profit margins are very important. And again, this is all public record. I'm not going to name specific builders, but I'm going to give very specific examples so that all you need to do is is do a quick Google and you can work out who we're talking about. But there's a public builder. They announced that their um, uh, profit margins in uh, the first quarter were almost 30%. Um, And historically, they'd never been above 20%. And there's another um, very, very, very large public builder that just announced last week or the other week that their uh, profit margins were 29%. Historically, they'd never been above 13 until the last couple of years. So what does that tell us? Well, that tells us two important things. One, it tells us that demand was so high over the last two years that even in a labor shortage and even in a supply constrained market and even with costs rising, the builders not only passed on those costs to the home buyer, but they actually added some extra profit on top. And f- quite frankly, I don't blame them given how much the industry you know, or the market freaks out at any ill wind. Can you blame them for trying to make as much money as possible um, when times are good? And that's just another example of, of how unhealthy our, our market is that the builders have to think like that. But it also tells us something else. And this is the part that people don't, you know, I worry that doesn't sort of translate, which is they can reduce prices, they can absorb costs and still stay within their historic norms. And yes, they have reduced their prices, but did they really? It's the same thing with a person who put their home on the market for 1.4 million and then they sell it for 1.3. Yes, they took a $100,000 deduction on what they had priced it, but they'd only bought the home for seven or 800,000 and they're making 500,000 profit instead of 600,000 profit. So, you know, we have to have some sort of norm on it. And where I worry is I'm expecting, again, this is our prediction. We're, we're not saying that things are going to be rosy. I'm expecting that there's going to be a reduction in profit margins over the next quarter to two quarters. And that's kind of priced in with the builder stock price. They're trading at around four times earnings when they should be considerably higher, which means people, you know, the market doesn't believe that those earnings are going to last. But my question for you is this, and it's sort of rhetorical, but you know, that builder I mentioned that the first one, margins in 30%, historically never above uh, 20, ran by 19. If they announce that their margins are 21% in the next quarter, 
Will it be reported that they are still 10% higher than historic norms? Or will it be housing in chaos as public builders' earnings uh, tumble 30%? We know what the answer is. And again, that's where I'm saying is, you know, you have to understand what the actual um, data point is telling you and realize when to when to panic. And the thing that will make us all, should all panic, is when inventory rises, you know, to, you know, 06, 07 levels, maybe even 05 levels is something that we should be worried about. And when, you know, you start seeing new bills being delayed because builders are not putting out new deposits. Those are two things that can be tracked, one easier than the than the other, but those are things that are actually to worry about. Whether or not margins decrease or whether or not interest rates go up or whether or not, you know, days on the market, uh, you know, go up, that's just, that's just noise. It's not actually telling you about the underlying health of the housing market, which is unhealthy because we don't have enough homes. But for those of us who are trying to fix that, is a very stable, healthy basis for the next, sadly, you know, three to four to five years. Yeah, very fair. John, thank you. You cut through the noise as always. I always learn a ton when I sit down with you. Well, as I as I was saying to you at the start, we have a deal, right? So if I'm right, we're going to, you know, just keep replaying this over and over for the next couple of years. And if I'm wrong, you have you've given me your word, right? We're going to delete this. Nobody gets to see it. You know, we'll, you know, that, that's 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 how the best economists work, right? That's how that's how the internet works, right? You just press delete and it's gone forever. So we absolutely will do that. Uh, you're you're a super smart guy, so fingers crossed everything pans out. Uh, but yeah, interesting times, and uh, yeah, I, I can't thank you enough, my friend. I truly, anytime I chat with you, whether it's here, whether it's the conference, um, I always I always walk away a more well informed human being, and that to me that's the we do, we do our best. And again, we, you know, we're, we, we love sort of working with you guys. I think it's, it's, it's great to have that sort of relationship where we can look at things together, discuss the market together, you know, keep ourselves in check, you know, and it's, it's always good to, to, you know, hear things you don't agree with or to hear other perspectives. And I think the sort of Satanta Lima one connection, um, you know, really you know, gives us that difference where we can, you know, offer something that, uh, you know, gives both of our inputs and both of our perspectives as opposed to allowing, you know, one view to, to dominate the other. So we're, we're very appreciative of, of that. Always love talking to you again, genuinely, uh, love listening to your podcast as do most of my, most of my team. I think it's a, uh, it's a great listen and a very valuable tool and, uh, you know, congrats on the continued success and may you have more. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Too kind. And anyone listening, please do check out Satanta, S-E-T-A-N-T-A. And John Curry, CEO, thank you again for joining, my friend. No problem, sir. Have a good one. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry, bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common-sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team, and that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800 259 
0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.